Wellington needs a champion. We've got some major challenges ahead of us. Uh, if you look at what our city needs to do over the next uh, few years, it's clear that we're going to need someone who will fight for our share of investment. Hello, welcome to Dave Tells Us, a podcast series where I try to find interesting people to tell us interesting shit. The first series is Dave Tells Us about Wellington Central, the electorate. I've got Nicola Willis from National, Grant Robertson from Labour and James Shaw from the Greens. Our first episode is with Nicola Willis from National and I started off by asking her for a Wellington Central stump speech. Let's talk about transport. That's an area where Wellington has consulted and discussed, debated and engaged for years. The Let's Get Wellington Moving process came up with a recommended programme of investment for a balanced, integrated transport plan. Uh, And the first thing the government did was cherry-pick projects. They left out a second terrace tunnel. They left out undergrounding of State Highway 1 through Tiaro. They kicked a second Mount Vic tunnel out into the Never Never. And then on top of that, they said, we'll only fund 60% of the state highway projects. Local government will have to come up with the other 40%. So that's been a real disaster for Wellington. We've seen no projects completed. And we have to get progress on transport if we're going to support the kind of densification and increased housing supply that Wellingtonians want. So let's move to that second issue, which is housing. This is an issue that both Labour and the Greens campaigned particularly hard on in the last election. I was at candidate debates with Grant Robertson where he would say, it's a crisis, we're going to solve it. Kiwi Build! Well, Kiwi Build has utterly failed Wellington. Actually, only 500 and something houses have been built across the country. Here in Wellington, house prices have gone up 30% in the past three years. Average rents more than $70 a week uh, higher. Uh, And we have hundreds more on our state house waiting list here in this city with more homeless. That is a terrible track record. And I'd put to you that if we genuinely want to solve housing issues, we need to put in infrastructure that supports growth. We need to allow for green fields development in areas like Lincolnshire Farm with the Batoni to Granada Road. And we also need to reform the Resource Management Act. Finally, the other issue that I'm really concerned about here in Wellington is water. We've had millions of litres of wastewater pumped into our harbour. We have polluted local streams, overflows of sewerage. It's not okay. We need to hold the council accountable for doing better Uh, and I just have no faith that that will be possible while central government under Labour and the Greens are asking them to fund 40% of local transport projects. They will be overwhelmed. So I'm a champion for Wellington. I fight for the city. I've got a track record of doing that on everything from the buses to the name of our university through to Kiwi Build buyers who had their deposits tied up and I want to keep fighting for our city and what it needs to make progress on key issues including transport, housing and water. That's a good stump speech. How many times have you given it? Oh, at least half a dozen times. There's been a lot of candidate debates and there's a lot more to come. So if you cited Wellington house prices going up by 70% as a failing of the Labour-led, sorry, 30% by the Labour-led government, Mm -hmm. do you think house prices should go down? What I think is a failing is Labour promising to solve something that they not only haven't made the progress they promised, but they've actually made no progress on. It's actually got worse. That's the failure. And what I ask Wellingtonians to remember when they go to the ballot box is last time this group of people made big promises to you, they did not deliver. So measure their promises against their track record. That's all I ask people to do. Uh, And their solution, Kiwi Build, 
Well, those two words never even pass Grant Robertson's lips anymore. You don't hear him say Kiwi Build because it was an utter failure. And I think that's almost a fraud to talk about a policy as being the solution and then to run away from it realising that it's a disaster. Because I was the boring person in the corner at the last election campaign saying, you know, Grant says he's going to solve this with Kiwi Build. Let me tell you, it won't work, it will fail. And so it is. So you can understand, Dave, why I'm, why I'm a bit frustrated. Oh, absolutely. Um, but one of the problems you've got is that I teach media training to people, and one of the things I teach is the pivot, which is if you get confronted <laughs> with a question you don't want to answer, yeah. you give a verbal tick to begin with, and then you launch into your own key messaging. Right. And what I actually said was, you said that the house prices increasing by 30% was a failing. Mm-hmm. Does that mean you think house prices should go down? What I think they need to be is more affordable for working people, which is to say, in relation to wages, to incomes, house prices need to be more affordable. We can't be stuck in an endless cycle where the multiple of, you know, the average house price is multiples more than the uh, average wage. So over time, you want those two things to come closer together. I'm not one who argues this is a problem we will solve overnight. I think that would be irresponsible. But what I do think we can do is make fundamental reforms to the Resource Management Act, to our planning laws, to our infrastructure building, to ensure that we increase housing supply such that we don't let that runaway house price growth continue into the next generation. Talking about transport, you ran a fairly uh, compelling campaign called Double the Tunnel, and we've talked about this in the past. Mm. My problem is that those two words don't rhyme, and that always <laughs> agitated me. And I yeah. even suggested to you, you could go with drill the hill, fill. Yes, You did yes. not take me up on that. Yes. Why did you not go with a rhyming slogan? Well, drill the hill, fill has some um, strength to it, but it implies that Phil Twyford will be the transport minister into the future, and I'm simply not prepared to accept that. Um, and also that he's so, And drill the drilling. hill, bish, just doesn't rhyme either. So then we're left with Double the Tunnel. Double the Tunnel has caught on. Um, I have people raise it with me. I have people say to me, you're the Double the Tunnel woman. And I tell you what, people like it. Uh, But I want people to be aware that it's actually a symbol for something bigger, which is it's not just about duplicating the Mount Vic Tunnel. It's about getting on with the transport projects that Wellingtonians have had delayed for decades. You know, the Mount Vic Tunnel started off as a campaign in the 60s, and here we are still talking about it. Double the tunnel is one project for us. We also want to widen Ruahini Street and Wellington Road. We want to sort out congestion at the Basin Reserve. We think let's just be serious and underground State Highway 1 through Tiaro along Caro Drive. Let's duplicate the Terrace Tunnel and let's put in modern bus rapid transit from the railway station to the airport and do bus priority measures around the city so that if you want to catch a bus, it turns up on time and it's reliable. Okay, so part of these podcasts I've asked the other candidates to submit their questions that Mm. they would like me to ask you Mm. and both James and Grant have given me questions that pertain to Wellington Transport. It's not like them to be on exactly the same page. It's not Um, (laughs) but so I'll give you James's question first which is it's it's a it's a very finite question, and you'll see what I mean by that when I ask it. So yeah. I'll be interested to know if you even can answer it. Uh-huh. James said, "How many more cars will come into Wellington if we build all the roads through the city that you're arguing for?" 
Well, you're right. I don't have a number to give you, yeah, you but can't I will really say seven. But I will address his question, which is he's he's making this argument that more roads equals more cars. Induced congestion. So yes. what I would say to that is actually Wellington is going to have more cars regardless of whether or not we build more roads. And I'll tell you why. First of all, Transmission Gully will one day be completed, hopefully under a national-led government, because uh, Labour haven't been so good at making progress on it. But when it is completed, a lot more cars will be coming into the city. But we also, in this region, need to bring on, as I was saying earlier, more housing around the region. We won't just solve Wellington City's housing issues by building houses in the city. Areas like Lincolnshire Farm between Petone and Granada. If we build a road there, there'll be more houses and people there will be wanting to work in the city. I want this to be a growing, vibrant city and that involves people coming from Lower Hutt, Rimutaka, Mana, into the city to work, to play, to study. So that is the reality and that is what all the transport forecasters say as they predict a growing Wellington. And the question is how do we help people get around? I agree with James that public transport, modern public transport is a very important part of it and I agree that we need to have solutions for active transport modes so it's easy to walk, it's easy to cycle and actually undergrounding State Highway 1 through Tiara really helps with that. But roads are also part of our future. They take buses, they take cars, and let's make lots of those cars electric. Okay, so... More. I mean, I mean, the answer to James's question is more. There yeah, will be more. I'm also interested, though we could litigate housing forever, mm. you keep wanting to shift the burden to other electorates, I noticed. Like your Lincolnshire farm uh, example is obviously not in the Wellington Central electorate, talking about Rimutaka, talking about the Hutt Valley. Um, are you just trying to make it someone else's problem? Absolutely not. Um, so are you pro-densification? I think we need to go both up and out. Okay. So Grant's question, mm -hmm. it involves uh, your colleague Paul Goldsmith and his recent failings. He said, National's current economic plan requires more than $10 billion out of the National Land Transport Fund. How will that be achieved without cutting projects like Let's Get Wellington Moving? Well, what we've presented is a very detailed, costed Wellington transport plan. It's actually a lot more detailed than the government's plan, which is one or two press releases from Phil Twyford. When was it's it a costed? 15, uh, it was costed, we released that uh, plan about two months ago. So this is a, before preview when a whole lot of figures changed, which your party the, didn't quite keep tabs le on. Let me finish the answer though, because the plan is very detailed. It's at least 15 pages long. I really encourage people to go and have a look at it because we go through project by project, we cost how much they will be, and we make commitments in writing, in detail, about what we will fund and over what time period. We've laid that out for Wellington. And I just put, to this, put this to Grant. I'd say, I fought to make sure we got our fair share of transport investment out of National's $31 billion transport plan I believe strongly that Wellington needs this investment and I won't do what he's done and sit by while the Cabinet make decisions that let Wellington get less than its fair share. I, I believe strongly that we can fund it. Chris Bishop, my colleague, the transport spokesperson, assures me that the uh, muck that uh, Grant Robertson's trying to rake around somehow taking money from the road fund to put into roads is somehow a problem. Well, actually, it does all add up. And with uh, Chris Bishop as Transport Minister and me in a national-led cabinet, we will get transport done in Wellington. Okay, so on polling, and there was a poll out last night just to date this interview, which had you guys 
21 points behind Labour and it had U plus Act 21 points behind Labour plus Greens. Uh, it's odds on that there's going to be a Labour-led government. Why would Wellington Central want an MP who represents them from the opposition? Well, I think I've had a... Um, first of all, I'd like to say that I still think there's a good chance yeah. oh, that absolutely. we will um, sure be able to lead the government. Yeah. There's a big group of undecided voters. We've seen a very volatile electorate. I'm campaigning in the absolute hope that we'll be able to form a government. So I want to put that really clearly. Um, but the second thing I would say is I've actually got a track record over these past two and a half years of being in interested in Wellington issues, focused on them, very engaged in our community. Uh, and where I have seen that a central government voice can be of value, I have added it. Um, and I simply say that being a voice that is free uh, to do that is important, and I haven't seen the same commitment um, from others, and I, I want to continue that role. Who do you think is the more effective Mayor of Wellington, Andy Foster or Mittens the Cat? <laughs> well, Mittens is a beautiful boy, uh, and Andy Foster is doing his very best. <laughs> he, he is trying his best. Um, a lot of people say that you do a very good impression of the Prime Minister. Um, I'm not sure that that is accurate so much as um, I have uh, helped do uh, debate prep for it from time to time. Uh, and when I do that, the focus is much more on the content of what would be said than any impression. What, talk us through how the Prime Minister thinks. Like... What, what, oh, you'd have to ask her about that, Dave. Yeah, but when you I can't give you insights into that beyond uh, anything you can observe for yourself. So for the recent debate between your leader, Judith Collins, and the Prime Minister, were you the Prime Minister for that rehearsal? I was one of many people in our team. Um, we're really lucky. We've got um, fantastic MPs, fantastic staff members uh, who are able to support the leader, make sure she has the information she needs the inf and answer her questions uh, and help her prepare. And so I wouldn't want to overstate my role in that, except to say that I'm one of several people who wanted to help her. Why are you in the National Party? Because at a fundamental level, I believe that government doesn't have the best track record of solving all of our problems. I think that families, communities, businesses non-government organisations can make a lot of progress for society and in order to enable that to happen you can't let government get too big nor expect the state to solve everything. I'm fundamentally optimistic about the power of individuals with the right assistance to shape their own lives when given personal responsibility and reward for their efforts. I think people can make huge strides for themselves uh, and so to me the principles of the National Party, which are fundamentally about entrepreneurialism, reward for achievement, backing hard work, strong families, strong communities, appeal to me. Okay. And I want to see them furthered. I think fundamentally those are New Zealand's values. When we've been at our most successful, we've had those values to the fore. Do you think those values are still true in a COVID world where big government keeps on getting bigger? And both parties, major parties, seem to have reached a consensus on that. 
I think government has a really important role when we're in a recessionary condition, recessionary conditions. But what we don't think is that a huge number of government programs will be the solution in its entirety. So we have put out a plan that says let's actually back small businesses and private enterprise to create jobs too, whether that's through our job start scheme to pay small businesses to take people on, whether that's through increasing depreciation, or whether that's actually through tax reduction that says if we let individuals spend more of their money, they will make wise investments. At a philosophical level, yes, there's a role for the state, but let's not crowd out the private sector or individuals. How long do you think economic conditions are going to be a bit shit? Well, if I had the answer to that question, um, I would be a very valuable seer and I would have a crystal ball. Um, obviously, it depends on how long we are going to be living with COVID-19 around the world. The challenge for us in New Zealand is not just community transmission here, which of course we all want to prevent, um, but it's also about the fact that our trading partners uh, are very affected by this and that's going to affect consumer demand for our products, it's going to affect our tourism industry, it's going to affect all of our business who businesses who trade globally and yep, um, some people say the vaccine will be the solution and that'll be the end of it but I'm worried uh, that a vaccine won't solve it quickly uh, because we may see slower uptake in some countries uh, and I don't think that this is something that will end uh, in the next year, put it that way. Okay, so then if that's the case, and National's proposal is tax cuts for 16 months, isn't that effectively a tax increase in 16 months for everybody when times are still a bit shit? Well, what we've said is the immediate priority is stimulus right now. All of the forecasts which the Treasury and the government and other economists are releasing do say we are currently at our lowest ebb and the next 16 months are going to be the hardest. So that's when we want to most ramp up stimulus in the form of tax reduction. Coming out of that, as economic conditions improve, actually will still be in a stimulatory phase, which is to say government expenditure will still outweigh the revenue that we're taking in. We're not forecasting a return to surplus until 2028. So for us, tax cuts are the immediate stimulus. And yes, you're right, um, they will need to be taken away at some point. I wish they didn't have to be, but we are taking a prudent, responsible approach to ensuring that we are getting back into surplus within the next decade. Why are surpluses so important? Because ultimately, if we don't start paying down the debt that we're taking on now, then my kids, your kids, and actually our grandkids are going to be faced with such enormous levels of debt in this country that if there's another massive Wellington earthquake or a huge event, New Zealand could be at risk of not being able to source the funds globally. We need to recover effectively from that. We could be putting a future generation at risk of having to run austerity measures that you and I would abhor. Okay, so if we're so concerned about what we're going to be leaving behind our children and our grandchildren, why is your party so crap on climate change? Well, I don't think we are. I would remind you that we made the decision to support the Zero Carbon Act. And we did so even though there were significant sectors of our supporters, of the community, who opposed that legislation. And what we said was, we think that in the medium term, New Zealand must reduce our emissions, we must contribute to global efforts to reduce emissions, and we must be responsible uh, global citizens on climate change. 
We think some independence uh, and the advice about how we achieve that is useful. An independent climate change commission is a good idea. But you made it non-binding. What we said was let's make sure that this legislation still takes into account our broader role as a country that feeds the world. So one of the areas we were really careful uh, to emphasise was that it will not help the world or global climate change if all we do is make the cost of farming so high here that people end up buying their meat from the US or China. Because I tell you what, I've visited farms in China uh, and they are a lot worse for the climate and for the environment than farms here. So what we do need to do is preserve our role as global food producers, as sustainable food producers. But don't get me wrong, double down on investing heavily in research, science, technology to come up with on-farm solutions, but do this in a way that's pragmatic and truly global. You once sent me flowers. <laughs> that's right. Do you want to tell that story? Um, I, I think what I would uh, say about that is that I... Um, cut you off, you said, in my car, which embarrassed twice. me twice, okay, twice, um, which embarrassed me a lot. I wasn't aware that I'd done it, which I know potentially makes it even worse. Um, but rather than question you and say, no, I think you're just being mean, I looked myself in the mirror and I went, actually, I know I'm not a very excellent driver. It is one of the areas I need to work on in this life. It's possible that I cut Dave off and that would have really ruined his morning I'm lucky that he hasn't gone straight to Twitter with this. I will send him some flowers. So I did go straight to Twitter, but I didn't name you. Mm. I said that if you're going to be an MP with your face on the side of your car, <laughs> it would pay not to cut people off twice in quick succession. And I got a very panicked message from Bish, uh, who thought that it was him. <laughs> Which I think just goes to speak to his own confidence and his own driving. <laughs> I think as an MP with your face on your car... Um, you do know that any time you muck up, knowingly or unknowingly, someone will have noticed. Um, and it is, I think, why some of my senior colleagues don't drive branded cars anymore, because you'll appreciate from your own driving that it's hard to go a whole year without a mistake or two. Yes. All right. You told a story on your News Hub profile about ripping out your tear duct on a trampoline while mm. trying to do a double backflip. Mm. Is that actually just an excuse because right-wing people can't cry? <laughs> I can assure you I can cry. But do you know what was so interesting about that was after I made that comment on News Hub because I talked about the fact that as a young person I was interested in gymnastics and surfing, I, the hate that I got in response from trolls online talking about how could that heifer of a woman, that fat woman ever have been a gymnast, ever have um, served, oh, I don't think so, that sounds like she's made it up. But I just want to assure people that no matter what your body type, you're capable of cartwheels, you're capable uh, of surfing, and certainly I am capable of those things. Get on you. People, don't be assholes online. It's a fairly <laughs> good rule to stand by. That's right. All right, you were one of Todd Muller's numbers people uh, during the coup. Uh, alongside your release the letter friend, Chris Bishop. <laughs> when that leadership went a little awry, did you think you were screwed? My immediate concern when Todd resigned was, of course, for him. Obviously. He's someone I have known since we worked together at Fonterra some years ago. Um, primarily, I to this day, see him as a good dad and a good husband. And the thought that 
the experience of leadership had left him so broken uh, was devastating to me, um, not only because of my friend being in such pain, uh, but also because I did feel uh, that I'd missed it, that I didn't know he was suffering so badly. And I think any of us who've had that experience of having a friend or colleague um, experiencing significant mental health challenges without us knowing and without us feeling that we've done everything we could have, it's, um, it's not a great feeling. Okay, so once you've gone past those not great feelings mm-hmm. and thoughts turned to your own career, yeah, did you kind of go, uh-oh, I kind of put all my eggs in that muller basket? Look, I'm a big believer that the way the National Party works is that we are fundamentally a meritocracy. Uh, we are about uh, our team putting forward policies that we think New Zealand needs and working together to get those messages out across communities across the country. Um, I'm confident that I play an important role in that and contributing to policy discussions in caucus, coming up with new ideas, advocating here in Wellington, um, putting forward um, putting forward views. And I trust that my colleagues um, want me to continue doing that. Okay. In your maiden speech, you talked about your great-great-grandfather, who was an M- MP what was then Wanganui, mm. and voted yes on women getting the vote in 1893. Mm. And you said that you followed in his feminist footsteps. What is feminism? Well, first of all, thank you for the flattery of having read my maiden speech. That's um, very sweet. Uh, for me, feminism is saying that women deserve the same rights and opportunities as men, and that uh, in our history they have not had those, and so we need to be careful to ensure they are upheld, protected, and occasionally fought for. Do you think it's harder to be a feminist in the National Party than in a party on the left? No. In fact, I'd almost go the other way um, and say that because National is a party that very much has its traditions and its values rooted in equal opportunity and meritocracy. Um, we've got a great history of women succeeding, uh, whether it's Jenny Shipley, whether it's Ruth Richardson. You can argue with their politics, but men in their party put them on pedestals. The former Prime Minister and leader of the National Party, Sir John Key, who you work for as a senior advisor, did get himself into a spot of bother around... Uh, pulling people's ponytails and the Minister of Women at the time, Minister Louise Upston, uh, didn't speak out, didn't criticise, uh, had earlier denied even being a feminist. In fact, your current leader, Judith Collins, was the only person from National to speak out. Now, I know this was before your time in Parliament, so you get a pass on this. But what is that the behaviour of a party of feminists? Look, I... Uh What I would say about um, that story and everything that went on with it um, was that I think all of us have at times done things that we reflect on and can see were silly or stupid. Um, And I judge John Key by my experiences with him. Sir John Key. Sir John Key. Sir John Key, thank you. Uh, Which were that he was absolutely a feminist in the sense that he was wonderful to work for as a woman. He treated women very well. He had utmost respect for women and he carved paths for people around him, whether that was for Paula Bennett, uh, whether that was for me, whether that was for other members of his staff. And so I take people as I find them. And I found him to be incredibly enabling. I'm going to have to call shenanigans on this because 
So there were plenty of people who would say that my own personal dealings with Harvey Weinstein, he was a really amicable fellow, and so it's that. Oh taking... come on, that is really unfair no, 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 to no. make any analogy no, 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 between no. Harvey Weinstein no, 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 no. and Sir John. No, 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 I'm not at all for a second saying. <laughs> well, that I'm not the... buying into that. Yeah, no, absolutely not, and that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that our own personal experiences of an individual, yeah, should not necessarily be relied on to be the sole judge of their character, right? Yeah. it's the whole believe them movement that that came about yeah. uh, and so you say to me i say john key pulled some ponytails that doesn't seem terribly feminist you mm. say to me yes but my experience was with him was that he was very pro-female yeah i don't buy that as being a necessarily good answer to to what i put to you well let me be clear i'm not making excuses for john key to have pulled someone's ponytail so john key to have pulled someone's ponytail and actually, I think if he was sitting here and you asked him about it, he'd be pretty clear that he regretted it. So the point that I'm making is that in, in terms of that behaviour, I don't think that it means that everything that John Key did in his tenure as Prime Minister was anti-feminist. I don't accept that. Yep, no, OK. Um, do you think it's hard to be a feminist in the National Party when your party is opposed to things that would be of more benefit to women so i just completely don't accept that okay so let's for a start talk about sue Maroney's bill that she tried to get passed to extend paid parental leave mm -hmm. which is a bill that ultimately favors women more than it does men but wouldn't uh, it be great if more men took parental leave absolutely. as an aside yeah 100 and look i support your guys policy around splitting that i think that's a really good idea but that's, that's not the point here. Mm. Um, you guys are also opposed to the extension of uh, sick leave, which, again, is a policy that tends to benefit women more because often they are the primary uh, caregiver for children, and if children are sick, they are the ones that take their sick leave to stay home with them. Um, so how does that marry up with being, being the party of feminists? Well, so taking those examples, with paid parental leave, we were very clear at the time, Bill English was clear as finance minister, that it was a policy that we wanted to implement in time, but we wanted to do so uh, when we believed it was fiscally affordable. And actually, when we returned to surplus, you saw National then campaign in the 2017 election on extending paid parental leave. So it's not that we've opposed these policies, it's that we do take an approach that says that being fiscally careful is important and that has always been a priority for us because we believe that benefits men and women. Uh, and, and I'd actually say that that approach applies across a number of policies where, yep, you can argue uh, if you wish to that something may be better for women right now, but we in all of our policies try and take a balanced approach to say, well, if we do that, what are the consequences elsewhere? What is the opportunity cost for that policy? And what impact will that have on families across the country, or on communities and individuals? Um, and I feel very comfortable in my feminism in the National Party that there are many people who speak up for the perspective of women, for the impact policies will have on women, uh, and that we put forward policies uh, that demonstrate that. I'd put to you the first 1,000 days policy we put out in this election campaign. It hasn't had as much attention as it should deserve because what it says is we accept the argument and the evidence that's now built up that if we invest in the first 1,000 days of a child's life, that will have a huge payoff in that individual's life but also for taxpayers over, over their life course. So we've said that actually starts with mothers. We're going to guarantee them a three-day natal stay, three-day stay after giving birth. 
And then it starts with parents, and we're going to ensure that every family, no matter their circumstances, has access to, towards $3,000 worth of support services. And that policy, uh, which also includes earlier screening, earlier intervention for children with additional needs, is informed by a perspective uh, that, frankly, a lot of mums in our caucus brought to the table. But I tell you what, the men in our caucus are also champions for it because they too, uh, many of them are parents, and, or even if they're not parents, can see the value of investing early. Isn't, though, a lot of that scheme just a new voucher system that you guys have been spending decades trying to implement and it's sort of a slight privatisation by stealth <laughs> of a lot of these services? No, whenever we come up with something great, people have to find some way of disliking it. And that's politics. But I tell you what, we've said we will keep all of the universal entitlements that are there except for the family start payment, which we say should be means tested in the first year. So we're not taking away the Plunkett program or the other programs there. We're saying there needs to be more because too many parents that we speak to have had the situation where they can't get access to a lactation consultant. They can't get access to someone to come and teach them how to get their baby to sleep. Or they don't go to play centre or they don't go to somewhere because there are actually financial reasons why they can't afford it. And we've said, let's get out that out of the way. Let's give them some money, but let's not dictate what people spend that on. It would be quite wrong for me to say, well, everyone gets a $500 location, lactation voucher when some people don't want to breastfeed. Um, so allowing some choice in how people access parenting support services is entirely appropriate. So why then are you guys national really focused around controlling how beneficiaries spend their benefit? I, I think our real focus when it comes to beneficiaries is supporting beneficiaries back into work. That is what we think it should be a core goal of the welfare system. It should be there to support people in their time of need, and we fully acknowledge that some people, for health reasons or physical reasons, aren't able to work. But for those who can, we believe work, in and of itself, is a good thing. It gives people something to get up for in the morning, it gives them purpose, it gives them dignity, it's good for them and their family members, and we make no apologies for wanting to construct a welfare system that incentivises people back into work. Wouldn't an increased minimum wage incentivise people back into work? If they're on a benefit that pays substantially less than what a full-time job with the minimum wage would pay them, wouldn't that be an incentive? The challenge with the minimum wage is that, yes, we should have a minimum level that employees, employers are required to pay. But if we lift that level too high, too fast, what we can do is kill off jobs. And that is always National's concern, is about striking the right balance so that small business owners and, and large business owners don't say, well, on the margin, it costs so much to take on an additional employee now that instead we'll invest in a computer or we'll restructure so we don't need so many staff or we won't expand because we can't afford it. And as I said earlier, our focus is on jobs, is on creating work. And so when it comes to the minimum wage, the conversation that we have there, the debate there, is about how do you strike that correct balance. In again, going back to your maiden speech, you, you talked glowingly of, of the heroes of New Zealand. And there was one bit in there that stuck out for me. You talked about the student who holds down two part-time jobs being a hero. Mm -hmm. And I thought, that's a bit fucked because that person is a student and they have two jobs on top of that. 
why is that a good thing? Isn't life for living? And aren't you effectively saying that it's too expensive for a student to just be a student or for a student to just be a student with one part-time job? You think that it's heroic for a student to hold down two part-time jobs? Well, maybe the part-time job is that on Saturday, two part-time jobs, so on Saturday night they're a glassy at a bar in town and on Monday morning they do letter sorting at an accountancy firm in town. And I know lots of students who have arrangements like that where they do something in the weekend, something during the week, they do a few hours here, a few hours there, they babysit for that family, they clean for that family. And I do think that's fantastic because it is about saying, well, I'm prepared to work hard to contribute to my education that I'm getting, but I tell you what, that work record they get is also really valuable and that ability to contribute to the community while studying I think is a positive thing and I do say to students don't regret that you have a part-time job don't worry about it because actually when people look at your CV they'll see that you've got a work history where you've successfully juggled study and working and that is a positive thing. I wouldn't say every student has to do it but when I see students doing it I think it's really positive. Okay you said again final question from your maiden speech you said <laughs> I think the members opposite have good hearts. Their ideas are occasionally a bit mad or naive, but I want the chance to talk them round from time to time. Hmm. What's a good example of a mad or naive idea from the government? Kiwi build. Oh yeah, I don't want to hear the speech again. <laughs> well, so you know, just, you yeah, asked me for an example. Yeah, no, it's a it's a screaming one, isn't it? Well, where no, it was pretty it's, naive, it, it was a, yeah. and it was a bit mad. I think it's a good idea. They just struggled with the execution a wee bit, which yeah. I think is possibly a metaphor for the last three years of government. When Julianne Genta did release the letter, were you... She didn't release the letter, Dave. Well, well was... she still hasn't released the letter. She can release the letter. Could you ask James whether he would release the letter? So I... Yeah, I'll, I'll take note of that. But the ombudsman said that they were not obliged to release the letter. And I understand that the major reason they didn't want to release the letter is set a precedent for future OIA requests, which mm. I think is very fair. And so they did release that summary of the letter, which was really benign. And were you sad that your big campaign of release the letter, which was big on Twitter, so that's not the real world, so I shouldn't get caught up in that. But were you sad that it ended up being over something as benign as it did? What that episode proved was exactly what Wellingtonians suspected, which was that all of the official advice and expert advice had recommended getting on with the Mount Vic Tunnel no later than 2024, have it underway. Something weird changed between the recommended program of investment hitting Cabinet and then the final package coming out, uh, in which it's been delayed till 2029 or later. And having been to candidate debates where Grant Robertson said he saw that the Mount Vic Tunnel was a priority, I looked around and I thought, well, what changed here? And it was very clear that what changed was Julianne Genta sent a letter which made it clear she would not support the package unless it delayed construction of the Mount Vic Tunnel so far into the never-never that it probably wouldn't happen. And to this day, when asked, James Shaw is clear he opposes a second Mount Victoria Tunnel. So I am glad that I exposed the truth which is that the only reason Wellington isn't getting a second Mount Vic Tunnel is because the Greens interfered and said, we don't want it. And Grant Robertson, Phil Twyford, all of that lot said, oh, OK, Greens, you have your way. 
who cares about Wellington and their transport needs? I have not seen too many examples of the Greens exerting power over the last three years. So I would be the Green School very surprised if that is the case. That they didn't exert any power there either. Well, then why aren't we getting our tunnel in the recommended program that investments said we idea. should? Oh, it's not. I'm really captivated by your insistence on listening to the expert advice because I'm really looking forward to National adopting the Welfare Expert Advisory Group's recommendation of increasing benefits by 40%, and I'm really looking forward to National adopting the Justice Reform Expert Advice, which almost reached prison abolition stage, uh, but I just don't think that you guys will be adopting their advice. So it seems there is some cherry-picking around what advice you do think should be listened to and shouldn't. And look, I will say, Labour did exactly the same thing, set up a whole bunch of expert groups and then adopted like 2% of what was recommended. So not just you so, guys. So you make a fair point and an unfair point. The fair point you make is that absolutely politicians do and should reserve the right to make decisions they believe are in the national interest that sometimes won't be the same as what officials say. And I absolutely agree with that. But the unfair thing is to say that somehow the welfare working group, which was consisted of hand-picked people that the government picked to be on They're that advisory group, that had terms of reference that were hand-picked, well, it is different from Let's Get Wellington Moving, which was a three-year process that was set up under national, but then was um, uh, that went ahead with the regional council and local council on board that involved endless consultation, discussion, that involved NCTA. It went on and on and on, and the whole purpose of it was to provide independent advice that reached the needs of Wellingtonians. So I think it is disappointing that the government rejected uh, that program. Say it again, second tunnel's crap idea. Not interested. <laughs> also, I live on the opposite side of the city, so that may be yeah, making my you, position You should go biased. and talk to people in a tai tai and yeah, about oh, it. No, I'm sure that some people are very pro. Or anyone who has to take their kids to sport in the weekend. All right, well, that's all I have. Is there is there any last pitch, anything I've left out that you wanted to say that you just want to throw out into the ether? Well... I would throw out into the ether that, as I said at the beginning, you know, Wellington does have big challenges ahead of it. And my concern is that over the past three years, we haven't seen much progress on them. And you really do have to ask yourself, if you're a voter in Wellington Central, do I really believe that if I vote for Labour and the Greens that anything is going to change, that anything will be fundamentally different in the next three and I don't think that's the case. I think fundamentally National is more ambitious for the city, for what we think is possible here, for the growth that can occur, for the infrastructure that should be built, for the housing that can be brought on, uh, and that we will take a more assertive approach in highlighting and responding to Wellington's challenges. And I would just simply ask Wellingtonians, when you're thinking about your vote, think about me. And um, I'm, I'm someone who has fought for the city. I'd ask you to vote for me. But most importantly, if you only want to give one vote my way, please make it your party vote because that's the vote that will determine the shape of the next government and a national-led government can deliver for Wellington. Kia ora. That was the spectacularly on message Nicola Willis with a little helpful lesson on MMP right at the end. Episode 2 is available now and it is with the Greens' James Shaw.